BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Panic Well? Anthony sat up in bed and looked down at her. The corners of his lips were drooping with depression. His voice was strained and hollow. Her reply was to raise her hand to her mouth and begin a slow, precise nibbling at her finger. We've done it, he said after a pause. Then, as she was still silent, he became exasperated. Why don't you say something? What on earth do you want me to say? What are you thinking? Nothing. Then stop biting your finger. Ensued a short, confused discussion of whether or not she had been thinking. It seemed essential to Anthony that she should muse aloud upon last night's disaster. Her silence was a method of settling the responsibility on him. For her part she saw no necessity for speech. The moment required that she should gnaw at her finger like a nervous child. "'I've got to fix up this damn mess with my grandfather,' he said with uneasy conviction. A faint newborn respect was indicated by his use of my grandfather instead of grandpa. "'You can't,' she affirmed abruptly. You can't ever. He'll never forgive you as long as he lives." "'Perhaps not,' agreed Anthony miserably. "'Still, I might possibly square myself by some sort of reformation and all that sort of thing.' "'He looked sick,' she interrupted. "'Pale as flour.' "'He is sick. I told you that three months ago.' "'I wish he'd died last week,' she said petulantly inconsiderate old fool." Neither of them laughed. "'But just let me say,' she added quietly, "'the next time I see you acting with any woman like you did with Rachel Barnes last night, I'll leave you. Just like that. I'm simply not going to stand it.' Anthony quailed. "'Oh, don't be absurd,' he protested. 
You know there's no woman in the world for me except you. None, dearest." His attempt at a tender note failed miserably. The more imminent danger stalked back into the foreground. "'If I went to him,' suggested Anthony, and said, with appropriate biblical quotations, that I'd walked too long in the way of unrighteousness and at last seen the light. He broke off and glanced with a whimsical expression at his wife. I wonder what he'd do. I don't know. She was speculating as to whether or not their guest would have the acumen to leave directly after breakfast. Not for a week did Anthony muster the courage to go to Terrytown. Prospect was revolting, and left alone, he would have been incapable of making the trip. But if his will had deteriorated in these past three years, so had his power to resist urging. Gloria compelled him to go. It was all very well to wait a week, she said, for that would give his grandfather's violent animosity time to cool, but to wait longer would be an error. It would give it a chance to harden. He went, in trepidation, and vainly. Adam Patch was not well, said Shuttleworth indignantly. Positive instructions had been given that no one was to see him. Before the ex-gin physician's vindictive eye, Anthony's front wilted. He walked out to his taxicab with what was almost a slink, recovering only a little of his self-respect as he boarded the train, glad to escape, boy-like, to the wonder-palaces of consolation that still rose and glittered in his own mind. Glory was scornful when he returned to Marietta. Why had he not forced his way in? That was what she would have done. Between them they drafted a letter to the old man, and after considerable revision sent it off. It was half an apology, half a manufactured explanation. The letter was not answered. Came a day in September, a day slashed with alternate sun and rain, sun without warmth, rain without freshness. On that day they left the gray house, which had seen the flower of their love. Four trunks and three monstrous crates were piled in the dismantled room, where, two years before, they had sprawled lazily, thinking in terms of dreams, remote, languorous, content. The room echoed with emptiness. Gloria, in a new brown dress edged with fur, sat upon a trunk in silence, and Anthony walked nervously to and fro smoking, as they waited for the truck that would take their things to the city. "'What are those?' she demanded, pointing to some books piled upon one of the crates. "'That's my old stamp collection,' he confessed sheepishly. "'I forgot to pack it. Anthony, it's so silly to carry it around.' "'Well, I was looking through it the day we left the apartment last spring, and I decided not to store it. Can't you sell it? Haven't we enough junk?' "'I'm sorry,' he said humbly. With a thunderous rattling the truck rolled up to the door. Gloria shook her fist defiantly at the four walls. "'I'm so glad to go!' she cried. "'So glad! Oh, my God, how I hate this house!' So the brilliant and beautiful lady went up with her husband to New York. On the very train that bore them away they quarreled. Her bitter words had the frequency, the regularity, the inevitability of the stations they passed. Don't be cross, begged Anthony piteously. We've got nothing but each other, after all. We haven't even that most of the time, cried Gloria. 
When haven't we? A lot of times, beginning with one occasion on the station platform at Redgate." "'You don't mean to say that—no,' she interrupted coolly, "'I don't brood over it. It came and went, and when it went it took something with it.' She finished abruptly. Anthony sat in silence, confused, depressed. The drab visions of Trainside Mamaroneck, Larchmont, Rye, Pelham Manor succeeded each other with intervals of bleak and shoddy wastes posing ineffectually as country. He found himself remembering how on one summer morning they two had started from New York in search of happiness. They had never expected to find it, perhaps, yet in itself that quest had been happier than anything he expected forevermore. Life, it seemed, must be a setting up of props around one, otherwise it was a disaster. There was no rest, no quiet. He had been futile in longing to drift and dream. No one drifted except to maelstroms, no one dreamed without his dreams becoming fantastic nightmares of indecision and regret. Pelham. They had quarreled in Pelham because Gloria must drive. And when she set her little foot on the accelerator, the car had jumped off spunkily, and their two heads had jerked back like marionettes worked by a single string. The Bronx, the houses gathering and gleaming in the sun, which was falling now through wide refulgent skies and tumbling caravans of light down into the streets. New York, he supposed, was home, the city of luxury and mystery, of preposterous hopes and exotic dreams. Here on the outskirts, absurd stucco palaces reared themselves in the cool sunset, poised for an instant in cool unreality, glided off far away, succeeded by the mazed confusion of the Harlem River. The train moved in through the deepening twilight, above and past half a hundred cheerful sweating streets of the Upper East Side, each one passing the car window like the space between the spokes of a gigantic wheel each one with its vigorous colorful revelation of poor children in swarming feverish activity, like vivid ants in alleys of red sand. From the tenement windows leaned rotund, moon-shaped mothers, as constellations of this sordid heaven, women like dark, imperfect jewels, women like vegetables, women like great bags of abominably dirty laundry. "'I like these streets,' observed Anthony aloud. I always feel as though it's a performance being staged for me. As though the second I've passed they'll all stop leaping and laughing and, instead, grow very sad, remembering how poor they are, and retreat with bowed heads into their houses. You often get that effect abroad, but seldom in this country." Down in a tall, busy street he read a dozen Jewish names on a line of stores. In the door of each stood a dark little man watching the passers from intent eyes, eyes gleaming with suspicion, with pride, with clarity, with cupidity, with comprehension. New York. He could not dissociate it now from the slow, upward creep of this people, the little stores, growing, expanding, consolidating, moving, watched over with hawk's eyes and a bee's attention to detail. They slathered out on all sides. It was impressive. In perspective, it was tremendous. Gloria's voice broke in with strange appropriateness upon his thoughts. I wonder where Bleakman's been this summer. The Apartment After the sureties of youth, 
there sets in a period of intense and intolerable complexity. With the soda-jerker this period is so short as to be almost negligible. Men higher in the scale hold out longer in the attempt to preserve the ultimate niceties of relationship, to retain impractical ideas of integrity. But by the late twenties the business has grown too intricate, and what has hitherto been imminent and confusing has become gradually remote and dim. Routine comes down like twilight on a harsh landscape, softening it until it is tolerable. The complexity is too subtle, too varied. The values are changing utterly with each lesion of vitality. It has begun to appear that we can learn nothing from the past with which to face the future. So we cease to be impulsive, convincible men, interested in what is ethically true, by fine margins we substitute rules of conduct for ideas of integrity, we value safety above romance, we become, quite unconsciously, pragmatic. It is left to the few to be persistently concerned with the nuances of relationships, and even this few only in certain hours especially set aside for the task. Anthony Patch has ceased to be an individual of mental adventure, of curiosity, and had become an individual of bias and prejudice, with a longing to be emotionally undisturbed. This gradual change had taken place through the past several years, accelerated by a succession of anxieties preying on his mind. There was, first of all, the sense of waste, always dormant in his heart, now awakened by the circumstances of his position. In his moments of insecurity he was haunted by the suggestion that life might be, after all, significant. In his early twenties the conviction of the futility of effort, of the wisdom of abnegation, had been confirmed by the philosophies he had admired as well as by his association with Maury Noble, and later with his wife. Yet there had been occasions, just before his first meeting with Gloria, for example, and when his grandfather had suggested that he should go abroad as a war correspondent, upon which his dissatisfaction had driven him almost to a positive step. One day, just before they left Marietta for the last time, in carelessly turning over the pages of a Harvard alumni bulletin, he had found a column which told him what his contemporaries had been about in this six years since graduation. Most of them were in business, it was true, and several were converting the heathen of China or America to a nebulous Protestantism but a few, he found, were working constructively at jobs that were neither sinecures nor routines. There was Calvin Boyd, for instance, who, though barely out of medical school, had discovered a new treatment for typhus, had shipped abroad, and was mitigating some of the civilization that the great powers had brought to Servia. There was Eugene Bronson, whose articles in The New Democracy were stamping him as a man with ideas transcending both vulgar timeliness and popular hysteria. There was a man named Daly who had been suspended from the faculty of a righteous university for preaching Marxian doctrines in the classroom. In art, science, politics, he saw the authentic personality of his time emerging. There was even Severance, the quarterback, who had given up his life rather neatly and gracefully with the Foreign Legion on the end. He laid down the magazine and thought for a while about these diverse men. In the days of his integrity he would have defended his attitude to the last. An epicurus in Nirvana, he would have cried that to struggle was to believe, to believe was to limit. 
he would as soon have become a churchgoer because the prospect of immortality gratified him, as he would have considered entering the leather business because the intensity of the competition would have kept him from unhappiness. But at present he had no such delicate scruples. This autumn, as his twenty-ninth year began, he was inclined to close his mind to many things, to avoid prying deeply into motive and first causes, and mostly to long passionately for security from the world and from himself. He hated to be alone. As has been said, he often dreaded being alone with Gloria. Because of the chasm which his grandfather's visit had opened before him, and the consequent revulsion from his late mode of life, it was inevitable that he should look around in this suddenly hostile city for the friends and environments that had once seemed the warmest and most secure. His first step was a desperate attempt to get back his old apartment. In the spring of 1912 he had signed a four-year lease at seventeen hundred a year with the option of renewal. This lease had expired the previous May. When he had first rented the rooms they had been mere potentialities, scarcely to be discerned as that. But Anthony had seen into these potentialities, and arranged in the lease that he and the landlord should each spend a certain amount in improvements. Rents had gone up in the past four years, and last spring, when Anthony had waived his option, the landlord, a Mr. Soenberg, had realized that he could get a much bigger price for what was now a prepossessing apartment. Accordingly, when Anthony approached him on the subject in September, he was met with Soenberg's offer of a three-year lease at twenty-five hundred a year. This, it seemed to Anthony, was outrageous. It meant that well over a third of their income would be consumed in rent. In vain he argued that his own money, his own ideas on the repartitioning, had made the rooms attractive. In vain he offered two thousand dollars, twenty-two hundred, though they could ill afford it. Mr. Soenberg was obdurate. It seemed that two other gentlemen were considering it. Just that sort of an apartment was in demand for the moment, and it would scarcely be business to give it to Mr. Patch. Besides, though he had never mentioned it before, several of the other tenants had complained of noise during the previous winter, singing and dancing late at night, that sort of thing. Internally raging, Anthony hurried back to the Ritz to report his discomfiture to Gloria. "'I can just see you,' she stormed, "'letting him back you down.' "'What could I say?' "'You could have told him what he was. I wouldn't have stood it. No other man in the world would have stood it. You just let people order you around and cheat you and bully you and take advantage of you as if you were a silly little boy. It's absurd. Oh, for heaven's sake, don't lose your temper. I know, Anthony, but you are such an ass. Well, possibly. Anyway, we can't afford that apartment. But we can't afford it better than living here at the Ritz. You were the one who insisted on coming here. Yes, because I knew you'd be miserable in a cheap hotel. Of course I would. At any rate, we've got to find a place to live. How much can we pay? she demanded. Well, we can pay even his price if we sell more bonds, but we agreed last night that, until I had gotten something definite to do, we—oh, I know all that. I asked you how much we can pay out of just our income. They say you ought not to pay more than a fourth. How much is a fourth? One hundred and fifty a month. Do you mean to say we've got only six hundred dollars coming in every month? A subdued note crept into her voice. Of course. 
Do you think we've gone on spending more than twelve thousand a year without cutting way into our capital? I knew we'd sold bonds, but have we spent that much a year? How did we? Her awe increased. Oh, I'll look in those careful account books we kept, he remarked ironically, and then added, Two rents a good part of the time, clothes, travel, why, each of those springs in California cost about four thousand dollars. That darned car was an expense from start to finish. And parties and amusements and, oh, one thing or another. They were both excited now, and inordinately depressed. The situation seemed worse in the actual telling Gloria than it had been when he had first made the discovery himself. "'You've got to make some money,' she said suddenly. "'I know it. And you've got to make another attempt to see your grandfather. I will. When? When we get settled.' This eventuality occurred a week later. They rented a small apartment on 57th Street at one hundred and fifty a month. It included bedroom, living room, kitchenette, and bath, in a thin, white-stone apartment house, and though the rooms were too small to display Anthony's best furniture, they were clean, new, and, in a blond and sanitary way, not unattractive. Bounce had gone abroad to enlist in the British Army, and in his place they tolerated rather than enjoyed the services of a gaunt, big-boned Irishman, whom Gloria loathed because she discussed the glories of Sinn Féin as she served breakfast. But they vowed they would have no more Japanese, and English servants were for the present hard to obtain. Like Bounds, the woman prepared only breakfast. Their other meals they took at restaurants and hotels. What finally drove Anthony post-haste up to Terrytown was an announcement in several New York papers that Adam Patch, the multimillionaire, the philanthropist, the venerable uplifter, was seriously ill and not expected to recover. THE KITTEN Anthony could not see him. The doctor's instructions were that he was to talk to no one, said Mr. Shuttleworth, who offered kindly to take any message that Anthony might care to entrust with him and deliver it to Adam Patch when his condition permitted. But by obvious innuendo he confirmed Anthony's melancholy inference that the prodigal grandson would be particularly unwelcome at the bedside. At one point in the conversation Anthony, with Gloria's positive instructions in mind, made a move as though to brush by the secretary, but Shuttleworth with a smile squared his brawny shoulders and Anthony saw how futile such an attempt would be. Miserably intimidated, he returned to New York, where husband and wife passed a restless week. A little incident that occurred one evening indicated to what tension their nerves were drawn. Walking home along a cross street after dinner, Anthony noticed a night-bound cat prowling near a railing. I always have an instinct to kick a cat," he said idly. I like them. I yielded to it once. When? Oh, years ago, before I met you. One night between the acts of a show. Cold night, like this, and I was a little tight. One of the first times I was ever tight," he added. The poor little beggar was looking for a place to sleep, I guess, and I was in a mean mood so I took my fancy to kick it." "'Oh, the poor kitty!' cried Gloria, sincerely moved. Inspired with the narrative instinct, Anthony enlarged on the theme. "'It was pretty bad,' he admitted. 
the poor little beast turned around and looked at me rather plaintively, as though hoping I'd pick him up and be kind to him. He was really just a kitten. And before he knew it, a big foot launched out at him and caught his little back. "'Oh!' Gloria's cry was full of anguish. "'It was such a cold night,' he continued, perversely, keeping his voice upon a melancholy note. I guess it expected kindness from somebody, and it got only pain." Broke off suddenly. Gloria was sobbing. They had reached home, and when they entered the apartment she threw herself upon the lounge, crying as though he had struck at her very soul. "'Oh, the poor little kitty!' she repeated piteously. "'The poor little kitty! So cold!' "'Gloria, don't come near me! Please!' Don't come near me! You killed the soft little kitty!" Touched, Anthony knelt beside her. "'Dear,' he said. "'Oh, Gloria, darling, it isn't true. I invented it, every word of it.' But she would not believe him. There had been something in the details he had chosen to describe that made her cry herself asleep that night, for the kitten, for Anthony, for herself, for the pain and bitterness and cruelty of all the world. The Passing of an American Moralist Old Adam died on a midnight of late November with a pious compliment to his God on his thin lips. He, who had been flattered so much, faded out flattering the omnipotent abstraction which he fancied he might have angered in the more lascivious moments of his youth. It was announced that he had arranged some sort of an armistice with the deity, the terms of which were not made public, though they were thought to have included a large cash payment. All the newspapers printed his biography, and two of them ran short editorials on his sterling worth, and his part in the drama of industrialism, with which he had grown up. They referred guardedly to the reforms he had sponsored and financed. The memories of Comstock and Cato the Censor were resuscitated and paraded like gaunt ghosts through the columns. Every newspaper remarked that he was survived by a single grandson, Anthony Comstock Patch, of New York. The burial took place in the family plot at Terrytown. Anthony and Gloria rode in the first carriage, too worried to feel grotesque, both trying desperately to glean presage of fortune from the faces of retainers who had been with him at the end. They waited a frantic week for decency, and then, having received no notification of any kind, Anthony called up his grandfather's lawyer. Mr. Brett was not, he was expected back in an hour. Anthony left his telephone number. It was the last day of November, cool and crackling outside, with a lusterless sun peering bleakly in at the windows. While they waited for the call, ostensibly engaged in reading, the atmosphere, within and without, seemed pervaded with a deliberate rendition of the pathetic fallacy. After an interminable while the bell jingled, and Anthony, starting violently, took up the receiver. "'Hello?' His voice was strained and hollow. "'Yes, I did leave word. Who is this, please?' "'Yes. Why, it was about the estate. Naturally I'm interested, and I've received no word about the reading of the will. I thought you might not have my address. What?' "'Yes.' Gloria fell on her knees. The intervals between Anthony's speeches were like tourniquets winding on her heart. 
she found herself helplessly twisting the large buttons from a velvet cushion. Then... That's... that's very, very odd. That's very odd. That's very odd. Not even any... uh... mention or any... uh... reason? His voice sounded faint and far away. She uttered a little sound, half-gasp, half-cry. "'Yes, I'll see. All right, thanks. Thanks.' The phone clicked. Her eyes looking along the floor saw his feet cut the pattern of a patch of sunlight on the carpet. She arose and faced him with a gray, level glance just as his arms folded about her. "'My dearest,' he whispered huskily, "'he did it, God damn him!' Next day. Who are the heirs? asked Mr. Haight. You see, when you can tell me so little about it. Mr. Haight was tall and bent and beetle-browed. He had been recommended to Anthony as an astute and tenacious lawyer. I only know vaguely, answered Anthony. A man named Shuttleworth, who is a sort of pet of his, has a whole thing in charge as administrator or trustee or something all except the direct bequest to charity and the provisions for servants and for those two cousins in Idaho. How distant are the cousins? Oh, third or fourth, anyway. I never even heard of them. Mr. Haight nodded comprehensively. And you want to contest a provision of the will? I guess so, admitted Anthony helplessly. I want to do what sounds most hopeful. That's what I want you to tell me. You want them to refuse probate to the will?" Anthony shook his head. "'You've got me. I haven't any idea what probate is. I want a share of the estate.' "'Suppose you tell me some more details. For instance, do you know why the testator disinherited you?' "'Why, yes,' began Anthony. "'You see, he was always a sucker for moral reform and all that.' "'I know.' interjected Mr. Haight humorlessly. And I don't suppose he ever thought I was much good. I didn't go into business, you see. But I feel certain that up to last summer I was one of the beneficiaries. We had a house out in Marietta, and one night Grandfather got the notion he'd come over and see us. It just happened that there was a rather gay party going on, and he arrived without any warning. Well, he took one look he and this fellow Shuttleworth, and then turned around and tore right back to Terrytown. After that he never answered my letters or even let me see him. He was a prohibitionist, wasn't he? He was everything, regular religious maniac. How long before his death was the will made that disinherited you? Recently, I mean since August. And you think that the direct reason for his not leaving you the majority of the estate was his displeasure with your recent actions? Yes. Mr. Haight considered. Upon what grounds was Anthony thinking of contesting the will? Why, isn't there something about evil influence? Undue influence is one ground, but it's the most difficult you would have to show that such pressure was brought to bear so that the deceased was in a condition where he disposed of his property contrary to his intentions. Well, 
Suppose this fellow Shuttleworth dragged him over to Marietta just when he thought some sort of a celebration was probably going on. That wouldn't have any bearing on the case. There's a strong division between advice and influence. You'd have to prove that the secretary had a sinister intention. I'd suggest some other grounds. A will is automatically refused probate in case of insanity, drunkenness, here Anthony smiled, or feeble-mindedness through premature old age. But, objected Anthony, his private physician, being one of the beneficiaries, would testify that he wasn't feeble-minded, and he wasn't. As a matter of fact, he probably did just what he intended to with his money. It was perfectly consistent with everything he'd ever done in his life. Well, you see, feeble-mindedness is a great deal like undue influence. It implies that the property wasn't disposed of as originally intended. The most common ground is duress, physical pressure. Anthony shook his head. Not much chance on that, I'm afraid. Undue influence seems best to me. After more discussion, so technical as to be largely unintelligible to Anthony, he retained Mr. Hayde as counsel. The lawyer proposed an interview with Shuttleworth, who, jointly with Wilson, Hymer, and Hardy, was executor of the will. Anthony was to come back later in the week. It transpired that the estate consisted of approximately forty million dollars. The largest bequest to an individual was of one million to Edward Shuttleworth, who received an additional thirty thousand a year salary as administrator of the thirty million dollar trust fund left to be doled out to various charities and reform societies practically at his own discretion. The remaining nine millions were proportioned among two cousins in Idaho and about twenty-five other beneficiaries—friends, secretaries, servants, and employees—who had at one time or another earned the seal of Adam Patch's approval. At the end of another fortnight Mr. Haight, on a retainer's fee of fifteen thousand dollars, had begun preparations for contesting the will. The End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Part Two Book Two, Chapter Three, Part Three of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Winter of Discontent before they had been two months in the little apartment on 57th Street, it had assumed for both of them the same indefinable but almost material taint that had impregnated the gray house in Marietta. There was the odor of tobacco always, both of them smoked incessantly. It was in their clothes, their blankets, the curtains, and the ash-littered carpets. Added to this was the wretched aura of stale wine with its inevitable suggestion of beauty gone foul and revelry remembered in disgust. About a particular set of glass goblets on the sideboard the odor was particularly noticeable, and in the main room the mahogany table was ringed with white circles where glasses had been set down upon it. There had been many parties. People broke things. People became sick in Gloria's bathroom. People spilled wine. People made unbelievable messes of the kitchenette. These things were a regular part of their existence. Despite the resolutions of many Mondays, it was tacitly understood as the weekend approached that it should be observed with some sort of unholy excitement. When Saturday came they would not discuss the matter, 
but would call up this person or that from among their circle of sufficiently irresponsible friends and suggest a rendezvous. Only after the friends had gathered and Anthony had set out to Cantor's would he murmur casually, I guess I'll have just one highball myself. Then they were off for two days, realizing on a wintry dawn that they had been the noisiest and most conspicuous members of the noisiest and most conspicuous party at the Bull Mitch, or the Club Ramay, or at other resorts much less particular about the hilarity of their clientele. They would find that they had, somehow, squandered eighty or ninety dollars, how they never knew. They customarily attributed it to the general penury of the friends who had accompanied them. It began to be not unusual for the more sincere of their friends to remonstrate with them in the very course of a party, and to predict a somber end for them in the loss of Gloria's looks and Anthony's constitution. The story of the summarily interrupted revel in Marietta had, of course, leaked out in detail. Muriel doesn't mean to tell everyone she knows, said Gloria to Anthony, but she thinks everyone she tells is the only one she's going to tell. And, diaphanously veiled, the tale had been given a conspicuous place in town tattle. When the terms of Adam Patch's will were made public and the newspapers printed items concerning Anthony's suit, the story was beautifully rounded out to Anthony's infinite disparagement. They began to hear rumors about themselves from all quarters, rumors founded usually on a soupçon of truth, but overlaid with preposterous and sinister detail. Outwardly they showed no signs of deterioration. Gloria at twenty-six was still the Gloria of twenty, her complexion a fresh damp setting for her candid eyes, her hair still a childish glory darkening slowly from corn-color to a deep russet gold, her slender body suggesting ever a nymph running and dancing through Orphic groves. Masculine eyes, dozens of them, followed her with a fascinated stare when she walked through a hotel lobby or down the aisle of a theatre. Men asked to be introduced to her, fell into prolonged states of sincere admiration, made definite love to her, for she was still a thing of exquisite and unbelievable beauty and for his part Anthony had rather gained than lost in appearance. His face had taken on a certain intangible air of tragedy, romantically contrasted with his trim and immaculate person. Early in the winter, when all conversation turned on the probability of America's going into the war, when Anthony was making a desperate and sincere attempt to write, Muriel Kane arrived in New York and came immediately to see them. Like Gloria, she seemed never to change. She knew the latest slang, danced the latest dances, and talked of the latest songs and plays with all the fervor of her first season as a New York drifter. Her coyness was eternally new, eternally ineffectual. Her clothes were extreme, her black hair was bobbed now like Gloria's. "'I've come up for the midwinter prom at New Haven,' she announced, imparting her delightful secret though she must have been older than any of the boys in college, she managed always to secure some sort of invitation, imagining vaguely that at the next party would occur the flirtation which was to end at the romantic altar. "'Where have you been?' inquired Anthony, unfailingly amused. "'I've been at Hot Springs. It's been slick and peppy this fall. More men!' "'Are you in love, Muriel?' "'What do you mean, love?' 
This was the rhetorical question of the year. I'm going to tell you something, she said, switching the subject abruptly. I suppose it's none of my business, but I think it's time for you two to settle down. Why, we are settled down. Yes, you are, she scoffed archly. Everywhere I go I hear stories of your escapades. Let me tell you, I have an awful time sticking up for you. You needn't bother, said Gloria coldly. Now, Gloria, she protested, you know I'm one of your best friends. Gloria was silent. Muriel continued. It's not so much the idea of a woman drinking, but Gloria's so pretty and so many people know her by sight all around that it's naturally conspicuous. What have you heard recently? demanded Gloria, her dignity going down before her curiosity. Well, for instance, that that party in Marietta killed Anthony's grandfather. Instantly, husband and wife were tense with annoyance. Why, I think that's outrageous. That's what they say, persisted Muriel stubbornly. Anthony paced the room. It's preposterous, he declared. The very people we take on parties shout the story around as a great joke, and eventually it gets back to us in some such form as this. Gloria began running her finger through a stray red-dish curl. Muriel licked her veil as she considered her next remark. "'You ought to have a baby.' Gloria looked up wearily. "'We can't afford it.' "'All the people in the slums have them,' said Muriel triumphantly. Anthony and Gloria exchanged a smile. They had reached the stage of violent quarrels that were never made up quarrels that smoldered and broke out again at intervals or died away from sheer indifference, but this visit of Muriel's drew them temporarily together. When the discomfort under which they were living was remarked upon by a third party, it gave them the impetus to face this hostile world together. It was very seldom now that the impulse toward reunion sprang from within. Anthony found himself associating his own existence with that of the apartment's night elevator man a pale, scraggly, bearded person of about sixty, with an air of being somewhat above his station. It was probably because of this quality that he had secured the position. It made him a pathetic and memorable figure of failure. Anthony recollected, without humor, a hoary jest about the elevator man's career being a matter of ups and downs. It was, at any rate, an enclosed life of infinite dreariness. Each time Anthony stepped into the car, he waited breathlessly for the old man's, "'Well, I guess we're going to have some sunshine today.' Anthony thought how little rain or sunshine he would enjoy shut into that close little cage in the smoke-colored, windowless hall. A darkling figure, he attained tragedy in leaving the life that had used him so shabbily. Three young gunmen came in one night tied him up and left him on a pile of coal in the cellar while they went through the trunk room. When the janitor found him next morning, he had collapsed from chill. He died of pneumonia four days later. He was replaced by a glib Martinique negro, with an incongruous British accent and a tendency to be surly, whom Anthony detested. The passing of the old man had approximately the same effect on him that the kitten story had had on Gloria. He was reminded of the cruelty of all life, and in consequence of the increasing bitterness of his own. He was writing, and in earnest at last. 
he had gone to Dick and listened for a tense hour to an elucidation of those minutia of procedure which hitherto he had rather scornfully looked down upon. He needed money immediately. He was selling bonds every month to pay their bills. Dick was frank and explicit. So far as articles on literary subjects in these obscure magazines go, you couldn't make enough to pay your rent. Of course, if a man has the gift of humor, or a chance at a big biography, or some specialized knowledge, he may strike it rich. But for you, fiction's the only thing. You say you need money right away? I certainly do. Well, it'd be a year and a half before you make any money out of a novel. Try some popular short stories. And, by the way, unless they're exceptionally brilliant, they have to be cheerful and on the side of the heaviest artillery to make you any money." Anthony thought of Dick's recent output, which had been appearing in a well-known monthly. It was concerned chiefly with the preposterous actions of a class of sawdust effigies who, one was assured, were New York society people, and it turned, as a rule, upon questions of the heroine's technical purity with mock sociological overtones about the mad antics of the four hundred. "'But your stories!' exclaimed Anthony aloud, almost involuntarily. "'Oh, that's different!' Dick asserted astoundingly. "'I have a reputation, you see, so I'm expected to deal with strong themes.' Anthony gave an interior start, realizing with this remark how much Richard Caramel had fallen off. Did he actually think that these amazing latter productions were as good as his first novel? Anthony went back to the apartment and set to work. He found that the business of optimism was no mean task. After half a dozen futile starts, he went to the public library and for a week investigated the files of a popular magazine. Then, better equipped, he accomplished his first story, The Dictaphone of Fate. It was founded upon one of his few remaining impressions of that six weeks in Wall Street the year before. It purported to be the sunny tale of an office boy, who, quite by accident, hummed a wonderful melody into the dictaphone. The cylinder was discovered by the boss's brother, a well-known producer of musical comedy, and then immediately lost. The body of the story was concerned with the pursuit of the missing cylinder and the eventual marriage of the noble office boy, now a successful composer, to Miss Rooney, the virtuous stenographer who was half Joan of Arc and half Florence Nightingale. He had gathered that this was what the magazines wanted. He offered, in his protagonists, the customary denizens of the pink and blue literary world, immersing them in a saccharine plot that would offend not a single stomach in Marietta. He had it typed in double-space, this last as advised by a booklet, Success as a Writer Made Easy, by R. Meggs Whittlestein, which assured the ambitious plumber of the futility of perspiration, since, after a six-lesson course, he could make at least a thousand dollars a month. After reading it to a bored Gloria and coaxing from her the immemorial remark that it was better than a lot of stuff that gets published, he satirically affixed the nom de plume of Gilles de Sade, enclosed the proper return envelope and sent it off. Following the gigantic labor of conception, he decided to wait until he heard from the first story before beginning another. Dick had told him that he might get as much as two hundred dollars. If by any chance it did happen to be unsuited, the editor's letter would, no doubt, give him an idea of what changes should be made. 
It is, without question, the most abominable piece of writing in existence," said Anthony. The editor quite conceivably agreed with him. He returned the manuscript with a rejection slip. Anthony set it off elsewhere and began another story. The second one was called The Little Open Doors. It was written in three days. It concerned the occult. An estranged couple were brought together by a medium in a vaudeville show. There were six altogether, six wretched and pitiable efforts to write down by a man who had never before made a consistent effort to write at all. Not one of them contained a spark of vitality, and their total yield of grace and felicity was less than that of an average newspaper column. During their circulation they collected, all told, thirty-one rejection slips, headstones for the packages that he would find lying like dead bodies at his door. In mid-January Gloria's father died, and they went again to Kansas City. A miserable trip, for Gloria brooded interminably, not upon her father's death, but on her mother's. Russell Gilbert's affairs having been cleared up, they came into possession of about three thousand dollars, and a great amount of furniture. This was in storage, for he had spent his last days in a small hotel. It was due to his death that Anthony made a new discovery concerning Gloria. On the journey east she disclosed herself, astonishingly, as a bill-fist. "'Why, Gloria!' he cried. "'You don't mean to tell me you believe that stuff!' "'Well,' she said defiantly, "'why not?' "'Because it's—it's fantastic.' "'You know that in every sense of the word you're an agnostic.' You'd laugh at any orthodox form of Christianity, and then you come out with the statement that you believe in some silly rule of reincarnation. What if I do? I've heard you and Mari, and everyone else for whose intellect I have the slightest respect, agree that life as it appears is utterly meaningless. But it's always seemed to me that, if I were unconsciously learning something here, it might not be so meaningless. You're not learning anything, you're just getting tired and if you must have a faith to soften things, take up one that appeals to the reason of someone beside a lot of hysterical women. A person like you oughtn't to accept anything unless it's decently demonstrable. I don't care about truth, I want some happiness." Well, if you've got a decent mind, the second one has got to be qualified by the first. Any simple soul can delude himself with mental garbage. I don't care, she held out stoutly and what's more, I'm not propounding any doctrine." The argument faded off, but reoccurred to Anthony several times thereafter. It was disturbing to find this old belief, evidently assimilated from her mother, inserting itself again under its immemorial disguise as an innate idea. They reached New York in March, after an expensive and ill-advised week spent in Hot Springs, and Anthony resumed his abortive attempts at fiction. As it became plainer to both of them that escape did not lie in the way of popular literature, there was a further slipping of their mutual confidence and courage. A complicated struggle went on incessantly between them. All efforts to keep down expenses died away from sheer inertia, and by March they were again using any pretext as an excuse for a party. With an assumption of recklessness, Gloria tossed out the suggestion that they should take all their money and go on a real spree while it lasted, 
anything seemed better than to see it go in unsatisfactory driblets. Gloria, you want parties as much as I do. It doesn't matter about me. Everything I do is in accordance with my ideas, to use every minute of these years, when I'm young, in having the best time I possibly can. How about after that? After that, I won't care. Yes, you will. Well, I may, but I won't be able to do anything about it. And I'll have had my good time. You'll be the same, then. After a fashion, we have had our good time, raise the devil, and we're in the state of paying for it. Nevertheless, the money kept going. There would be two days of gaiety, two days of moroseness, an endless, almost invariable round. The sharp pull-ups, when they occurred, resulted usually in a spurt of work for Anthony, while Gloria, nervous and bored, remained in bed or else chewed abstractedly at her fingers. After a day or so of this, they would make an engagement, and then, oh, what did it matter? This night, this glow, the cessation of anxiety, and the sense that if living was not purposeful, it was, at any rate, essentially romantic. Wine gave a sort of gallantry to their own failure. Meanwhile, the suit progressed slowly, with interminable examinations of witnesses and marshallings of evidence. The preliminary proceedings of settling the estate were finished. Mr. Haight saw no reason why the case should not come up for trial before summer. Gleekman appeared in New York late in March. He had been in England for nearly a year on matters concerned with films par excellence. The process of general refinement was still in progress. Always he dressed a little better, his intonation was mellower, and in his manner there was perceptibly more assurance that the fine things of the world were his by a natural and inalienable right. He called at the apartment, remained only an hour, during which he talked chiefly of the war, and left telling them he was coming again. On his second visit Anthony was not at home but an absorbed and excited Gloria greeted her husband later in the afternoon. "'Anthony,' she began, "'would you still object if I went in the movies?' His whole heart hardened against the idea. As she seemed to recede from him, if only in threat, her presence became again not so much precious as desperately necessary. "'Oh, Gloria!' Blockhead said he put me in. Only, if I'm ever going to do anything, I'll have to start now. They only want young women. Think of the money, Anthony. For you, yes. But how about me? Don't you know that anything I have is yours, too? It's such a hell of a career, he burst out, the moral, the infinitely circumspect Anthony, and such a hell of a bunch. And I'm so utterly tired of that fellow Bleakman coming here and interfering. I hate theatrical things." "'It isn't theatrical. It's utterly different.' "'What am I supposed to do? Chase you all over the country? Live on your money?' "'Then make some yourself.' The conversation developed into one of the most violent quarrels they had ever had. After the ensuing reconciliation, and the inevitable period of moral inertia, she realized that he had taken the life out of the project. Neither of them ever mentioned the probability that Bleakman was by no means disinterested, but they both knew that it lay back of Anthony's objection. 
In April, war was declared with Germany. Wilson and his cabinet, a cabinet that in its lack of distinction was strangely reminiscent of the Twelve Apostles, let loose the carefully starved dogs of war, and the press began to whoop hysterically against the sinister morals, sinister philosophy, and sinister music produced by the Teutonic temperament. Those who fancied themselves particularly broad-minded made the exquisite distinction that it was only the German government which aroused them to hysteria. The rest were worked up to a condition of retching indecency. Any song which contained the word mother and the word Kaiser was assured of a tremendous success. At last everyone had something to talk about, and almost everyone fully enjoyed it, as though they had been cast for parts in a somber and romantic play. Anthony, Maury, and Dick sent in their applications for officers' training camps, and the two latter went about feeling strangely exalted and reproachless. They chattered to each other, like college boys, of wars being the one excuse for and justification of the aristocrat, and conjured up an impossible cast of officers, to be composed, it appeared, chiefly of the more attractive alumni of three or four eastern colleges. It seemed to Gloria that in this huge red light streaming across the nation even Anthony took on a new glamour. The Tenth Infantry, arriving in New York from Panama, were escorted from saloon to saloon by patriotic citizens, to their great bewilderment. West Pointers began to be noticed for the first time in years, and the general impression was that everything was glorious, but not half so glorious as it was going to be pretty soon and that everybody was a fine fellow, and every race a great race, always excepting the Germans, and in every strata of society outcasts and scapegoats had but to appear in uniform to be forgiven, cheered and wept over by relatives, ex-friends, and utter strangers. Unfortunately, a small and precise doctor decided that there was something the matter with Anthony's blood pressure. He could not conscientiously pass him for an officer's training camp. The Broken Lute. Their third anniversary passed, uncelebrated, unnoticed. The season warmed in thaw, melted into hotter summer, simmered and boiled away. In July the will was offered for probate, and upon the contestation was assigned by the surrogate to trial, term for trial. The matter was prolonged into September. There was difficulty in impaneling an unbiased jury because of the moral sentiments involved. To Anthony's disappointment, a verdict was finally returned in favor of the testator, whereupon Mr. Haight caused a notice of appeal to be served upon Edward Shuttleworth. As the summer waned, Anthony and Gloria talked of the things they were to do when the money was theirs, and of the places they were to go after the war when they would agree on things again, for both of them looked forward to a time when love, springing like the phoenix from its own ashes, should be born again in its mysterious and unfathomable haunts. He was drafted early in the fall, and the examining doctor made no mention of low blood pressure. It was all very purposeless and sad when Anthony told Gloria one night that he wanted, above all things, to be killed. But, as always, they were sorry for each other for the wrong things at the wrong times. They decided that for the present she was not to go with him to the southern camp where his contingent was ordered. She would remain in New York to use the apartment, to save money, and to watch the progress of the case, 
which was pending now in the appellate division, of which the calendar, Mr. Hay told them, was far behind. Almost their last conversation was a senseless quarrel about the proper division of the income. At a word, either would have given it all to the other. It was typical of the muddle and confusion of their lives that on the October night when Anthony reported at the Grand Central Station for the journey to camp, she arrived only in time to catch his eye over the anxious heads of a gathered crowd. Through the dark light of the enclosed train-sheds their glances stretched across a hysterical area, foul with yellow sobbing and the smells of poor women. They must have pondered upon what they had done to one another, and each must have accused himself of drawing this somber pattern through which they were tracing tragically and obscurely. At the last they were too far away for either to see the other's tears. End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Part Three Book Three, Chapter Three, Part One of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Matter of Civilization At a frantic command from some invisible source, Anthony groped his way inside. He was thinking that for the first time in more than three years he was to remain longer than a night away from Gloria. The finality of it appealed to him drearily. It was his clean and lovely girl that he was leaving. They had arrived, he thought, at the most practical financial settlement. She was to have three hundred and seventy-five dollars a month, not too much considering that over half of that would go in rent, and he was taking fifty to supplement his pay. He saw no need for more. Food, clothes, and quarters would be provided. There were no social obligations for a private. The car was crowded and already thick with breath. It was one of the type known as tourist cars, a sort of brummagem pullman, with a bare floor and straw seats that needed cleaning. Nevertheless, Anthony greeted it with relief. He had vaguely expected that the trip south would be made in a freight car, in one end of which would stand eight horses and in the other forty men. He had heard the Om forty chevaux eight story so often that it had become confused and ominous. As he rocked down the aisle with his barrack bag slung at his shoulder like a monstrous blue sausage, he saw no vacant seats. But after a moment his eye fell on a single space at present occupied by the feet of a short swarthy Sicilian, who, with his hat drawn over his eyes, hunched defiantly in the corner. As Anthony stopped beside him, he stared up with a scowl, evidently intended to be intimidating. He must have adopted it as a defense against this entire gigantic equation. At Anthony Sharp, that seat taken, he very slowly lifted the feet as though they were a breakable package, and placed them with some care upon the floor. His eyes remained on Anthony, who meanwhile sat down and unbuttoned the uniform coat issued him at Camp Upton the day before. It chafed him under the arms. Before Anthony could scrutinize the other occupants of the section, a young second lieutenant blew in at the upper end of the car and wafted airily down the aisle, announcing in a voice of appalling acerbity, "'There will be no smoking in this car! No smoking! Don't smoke, men, in this car!' 
As he sailed out at the other end, a dozen little clouds of expostulation arose on all sides. Oh, cripe! Jeez! No smokin'? Hey, come back here, fella! What's the idea? Two or three cigarettes were shot out through the open windows. Others were retained inside, though kept sketchily away from view. From here and there, in accents of bravado, of mockery, of submissive humor, a few remarks were dropped that soon melted into the listless and pervasive silence. The fourth occupant of Anthony's section spoke up suddenly. "'Goodbye, Liberty,' he said sullenly. "'Goodbye, everything except being an officer's dog.' Anthony looked at him. He was a tall Irishman, with an expression molded of indifference and utter disdain. His eyes fell on Anthony, as though he expected an answer, and then upon the others. Receiving only a defiant stare from the Italian, he groaned and spat noisily on the floor by way of a dignified transition back to taciturnity. A few minutes later the door opened again and the second lieutenant was borne in upon his customary official zephyr, this time singing out a different tiding. "'All right, men, smoke if you want to. My mistake, men. It's all right, men. Go on and smoke. My mistake.' This time Anthony had a good look at him. He was young, thin, already faded. He was like his own mustache. He was like a great piece of shiny straw. His chin receded faintly. This was offset by a magnificent and unconvincing scowl, a scowl that Anthony was to connect with the faces of many young officers during the ensuing year. Immediately everyone smoked whether they had previously desired to or not. Anthony's cigarette contributed to the hazy oxidation which seemed to roll back and forth in opalescent clouds with every motion of the train. The conversation, which had lapsed between the two impressive visits of the young officer, now revived tepidly. The men across the aisle began making clumsy experiments with their straw seat's capacity for comparative comfort. Two card games, half-heartedly begun, soon drew several spectators to sitting positions on the arms of seats. In a few minutes Anthony became aware of a persistently obnoxious sound. The small defiant Sicilian had fallen audibly asleep. It was wearisome to contemplate that animate protoplasm, reasonable by courtesy only, shut up in a car by an incomprehensible civilization, taken somewhere to do a vague something without aim or significance or consequence. Anthony sighed, opened a newspaper which he had no recollection of buying, and began to read by the dim yellow light. Ten o'clock bumped stuffily into eleven. The hours clogged and cawed and slowed down. Amazingly, the train halted along the dark countryside, from time to time indulging in short, deceitful movements backward or forward, and whistling harsh paeans into the high October night. Having read his newspaper through, editorials, cartoons, and war-poems, his eye fell on a half-column headed Shakespeareville, Kansas. It seemed that the Shakespeareville Chamber of Commerce had recently held an enthusiastic debate as to whether the American soldier should be known as Sammies or battling Christians. The thought gagged him. He dropped the newspaper, yawned, and let his mind drift off at a tangent. He wondered why Gloria had been late. It seemed so long ago already. 
he had a pang of elusive loneliness. He tried to imagine from what angle she would regard her new position, what place in her considerations he would continue to hold. The thought acted as a further depressant. He opened his paper and began to read again. The members of the Chamber of Commerce in Shakespeareville had decided upon Liberty Lads. For two nights and two days they rattled southward, making mysterious inexplicable stops in what were apparently arid wastes, and then rushing through large cities with a pompous air of hurry. The whimsicalities of this train foreshadowed for Anthony the whimsicalities of all army administration. In the arid wastes they were served from the baggage-car with beans and bacon that at first he was unable to eat. He dined scantily on some milk-chocolate distributed by a village canteen. But on the second day the baggage-car's output began to appear surprisingly palatable. On the third morning the rumor was passed along that within the hour they would arrive at their destination, Camp Hooker. It had become intolerably hot in the car, and the men were all in shirt-sleeves. The sun came in through the windows, a tired and ancient sun, yellow as parchment and stretched out of shape in transit. It tried to enter in triumphant squares and produced only warped splotches, but it was appallingly steady. So much so that it disturbed Anthony not to be the pivot of all the inconsequential sawmills and trees and telegraph poles that were turning around him so fast. Outside it played its heavy tremulo over olive roads and fallow cotton fields, back of which ran a ragged line of woods broken with eminences of gray rock. The foreground was dotted sparsely with wretched, ill-patched shanties, among which there would flash by, now and then, a specimen of the languid yokelry of South Carolina, or else a strolling darky with sullen and bewildered eyes. Then the woods moved off and they rolled into a broad space like the baked top of a gigantic cake sugared with an infinity of tents arranged in geometric figures over its surface. The train came to an uncertain stop, and the sun and the poles and the trees faded, and his universe rocked itself slowly back to its old usualness, with Anthony Patch in the center. As the men, weary and perspiring, crowded out of the car, he smelt that unfortunate aroma that impregnates all permanent camps, the odor of garbage. Camp Hooker was an astonishing and spectacular growth, suggesting a mining town in 1870, the second week. It was a thing of wooden shacks and whitish-gray tents, connected by a pattern of roads, with hard tan drill-grounds fringed with trees. Here and there stood green YMCA houses, unpromising oases, with their muggy odor of wet flannels and closed telephone booths and across from each of them there was usually a canteen, swarming with life, presided over indolently by an officer who, with the aid of a sidecar, usually managed to make his detail a pleasant and chatty sinecure. Up and down the dusty roads sped the soldiers of the Quartermaster Corps, also in sidecars. Up and down drove the generals in their government automobiles, stopping now and then to bring unalert details to attention to frown heavily upon captains marching at the heads of companies, to set the pompous pace in that gorgeous game of showing off which was taking place triumphantly over the entire area. The first week after the arrival of Anthony's draft 
was filled with a series of interminable inoculations and physical examinations, and with the preliminary drilling. The days left him desperately tired. He had been issued the wrong size shoes by a popular, easy-going supply sergeant, and in consequence his feet were so swollen that the last hours of the afternoon were an acute torture. For the first time in his life he could throw himself down on his cot between dinner and afternoon drill call, and seeming to sink with each moment deeper into a bottomless bed, drop off immediately to sleep, while the noise and laughter around him faded to a pleasant drone of drowsy summer sound. In the morning he awoke stiff and aching, hollow as a ghost, and hurried forth to meet the other ghostly figures who swarmed in the wan company streets, while a harsh bugle shrieked and spluttered at the gray heavens. He was in a skeleton infantry company of about a hundred men. After the invariable breakfast of fatty bacon, cold toast and cereal, the entire hundred would rush for the latrines, which, however well policed, seemed always intolerable, like the lavatories in cheap hotels. Out on the field then, in ragged order, the lame man on his left grotesquely marring Anthony's listless efforts to keep in step, the platoon sergeants either showing off violently to impress the officers and recruits, or else quietly lurking in close to the line of march, avoiding both labor and unnecessary visibility. When they reached the field work began immediately. They peeled off their shirts for calisthenics. This was the only part of the day that Anthony enjoyed. Lieutenant Cretching, who presided at the antics, was sinewy and muscular, and Anthony followed his movements faithfully, with a feeling that he was doing something of positive value to himself. The other officers and sergeants walked about among the men with the malice of schoolboys, grouping here and there around some unfortunate who lacked muscular control, giving him confused instructions and commands. When they discovered a particular forlorn, ill-nourished specimen, they would linger the full half-hour making cutting remarks and snickering among themselves. One little officer named Hopkins, who had been a sergeant in the regular army, was particularly annoying. He took the war as a gift of revenge from the high gods to himself, and the constant burden of his haranguers was that these rookies did not appreciate the full gravity and responsibility of the service. He considered that by a combination of foresight and dauntless efficiency he had raised himself to his current magnificence. He aped the particular tyrannies of every officer under whom he had served in times gone by. His frown was frozen on his brow. Before giving a private a pass to go to town, he would ponderously weigh the effect of such an absence upon the company, the army, and the welfare of the military profession the world over. Lieutenant Cretching, blond, dull, and phlegmatic, introduced Anthony ponderously to the problems of attention, right face, about face, and at ease. His principal defect was his forgetfulness. He often kept the company straining and aching at attention for five minutes while he stood out in front and explained a new movement. As a result, only the men in the center knew what it was all about. Those on both flanks had been too emphatically impressed with the necessity of staring straight ahead. The drill continued until noon. It consisted of stressing a succession of infinitely remote details, and though Anthony perceived that this was consistent with the logic of war, it nonetheless irritated him. 
that the same faulty blood pressure which would have been indecent in an officer did not interfere with the duties of a private was a preposterous incongruity. Sometimes, after listening to a sustained invective concerned with a dull and on the face of it absurd subject known as military courtesy, he suspected that the dim purpose of the war was to let the regular army officers, men with the mentality and aspirations of schoolboys, have their fling with some real slaughter. He was being grotesquely sacrificed to the twenty-year patience of a Hopkins. Of his three tentmates, a flat-faced, conscientious objector from Tennessee, a big, scared Pole, and the disdainful Celt whom he had sat beside on the train. The two former spent the evenings in writing eternal letters home, while the Irishman sat in the tent door whistling over and over to himself half a dozen shrill and monotonous bird-calls. It was rather to avoid an hour of their company than with any hope of diversion, that, when the quarantine was lifted at the end of the week, he went into town. He caught one of the swarm of jitneys that overran the camp each evening, and in half an hour was set down in the front of the Stonewall Hotel on the hot and drowsy main street. Under the gathering twilight the town was unexpectedly attractive. The sidewalks were peopled by vividly dressed, overpainted girls, who chattered volubly in low, lazy voices, by dozens of taxi-drivers who assailed passing officers with, "'Take any well, lieutenant!' and by an intermittent procession of ragged, shuffling, subservient negroes. Anthony, loitering along through the warm dusk, felt for the first time in years the slow, erotic breath of the South, imminent in the hot softness of the air, in the pervasive lull of thought and time. He had gone about a block when he was arrested suddenly by a harsh command at his elbow. "'Haven't you been taught to salute officers?' He looked dumbly at the man who addressed him, a stout, black-haired captain, who fixed him menacingly with brown pop-eyes. "'Come to attention!' The words were literally thundered. A few pedestrians nearby stopped and stared. A soft-eyed girl in a lilac dress tittered to her companion. Anthony came to attention. "'What's your regiment and company?' Anthony told him. "'After this, when you pass an officer on the street, you straighten up and salute. All right. Say yes, sir. Yes, sir. The stout officer grunted, turned sharply, and marched down the street. After a moment, Anthony moved on. The town was no longer indolent and exotic. The magic was suddenly gone out of the dusk. His eyes were turned precipitately inward upon the indignity of his position. He hated that officer, every officer. Life was unendurable. After he had gone half a block, he realized that the girl in the lilac dress who had giggled at his discomfiture was walking with her friend about ten paces ahead of him. Several times she had turned and stared at Anthony, with cheerful laughter in the large eyes that seemed the same color as her gown. At the corner she and her companion visibly slackened their pace he must make his choice between joining them and passing obliviously by. He passed, hesitated, then slowed down. In a moment the pair were abreast of him again, dissolved in laughter now. Not such strident mirth as he would have expected in the North from actresses in this familiar comedy, but a soft, low rippling, like the overflow from some subtle joke, 
into which he had inadvertently blundered. "'How do you do?' he said. Her eyes were soft as shadows. Were they violet, or was it their blue darkness mingling with the gray hues of dusk? "'Pleasant evening,' ventured Anthony uncertainly. "'Sure is,' said the second girl. "'Hasn't been a very pleasant evening for you,' sighed the girl in lilac. Her voice seemed as much a part of the night as the drowsy breeze stirring the wide brim of her hat. "'He had to have a chance to show off,' said Anthony, with a scornful laugh. "'Reckon so,' she agreed. They turned the corner and moved lackadaisically up a side street, as if following a drifting cable to which they were attached. In this town it seemed entirely natural to turn corners like that. It seemed natural to be bound nowhere in particular, to be thinking nothing. The side street was dark, a sudden offshoot into a district of wild rose hedges and little quiet houses, set far back from the street. "'Where are you going?' he inquired politely. "'Just going.' The answer was an apology, a question, an explanation. "'Can I stroll along with you?' "'Reckon so.' It was an advantage that her accent was different. He could not have determined the social status of a Southerner from her talk. In New York a girl of a lower class would have been raucous, unendurable, except through the rosy spectacles of intoxication. Dark was creeping down. Talking little, Anthony in careless, casual questions, the other two with provincial economy of phrase and burden, they sauntered past another corner and another. In the middle of a block they stopped beneath a lamppost. "'I live near here,' explained the other girl. "'I live around the block,' said the girl in lilac. "'Can I see you home?' "'To the corner, if you want to.' The other girl took a few steps backward. Anthony removed his hat. "'You're supposed to salute,' said the girl in lilac with a laugh. "'All the soldiers salute.' "'I'll learn,' he responded soberly. The other girl said, "'Well,' hesitated, then added, "'Call me up tomorrow, Dot,' and retreated from the yellow circle of the street lamp. Then in silence Anthony and the girl in lilac walked the three blocks to the small rickety house which was her home. Outside the wooden gate she hesitated. "'Well, thanks.' "'Must you go in so soon?' "'I ought to.' "'Can't you stroll around a little longer?' She regarded him dispassionately. "'I don't even know you.' Anthony laughed. "'It's not too late.' I reckon I'd better go in. I thought we might walk down to see a movie. I'd like to. Then I could bring you home. I'd have just enough time. I've got to be in camp by eleven. It was so dark that he could scarcely see her now. She was a dress swayed infinitesimally by the wind, two limpid, reckless eyes. Why don't you come, Dot? Don't you like movies? Better come. She shook her head. I oughtn't to. He liked her, realizing that she was temporizing for the effect on him. He came closer and took her hand. If we get back by ten, can't you? Just to the movies? Well, I reckon so. 
Hand in hand they walked back toward downtown, along a hazy, dusky street where a negro newsboy was calling an extra in the cadence of the local vendor's tradition, a cadence that was as musical as song. Dot. Anthony's affair with Dorothy Raycroft was an inevitable result of his increasing carelessness about himself. He did not go to her desiring to possess the desirable, nor did he fall before a personality more vital, more compelling than his own, as he had done with Gloria four years before. He merely slid into the matter through his inability to make definite judgments. He could say no neither to man nor woman. Borrower and temptress alike found him tender-minded and pliable. Indeed, he seldom made decisions at all, and when he did they were but half-hysterical resolves formed in the panic of some aghast and irreparable awakening. The particular weakness he indulged on this occasion was his need of excitement and stimulus from without. He felt that for the first time in four years he could express and interpret himself anew. The girl promised rest. The hours in her company each evening alleviated the morbid and inevitably futile poundings of his imagination. He had become a coward in earnest, completely the slave of a hundred disordered and prowling thoughts which were released by the collapse of the authentic devotion to Gloria that had been the chief jailer of his insufficiency. On that first night, as they stood by the gate, he kissed Dorothy and made an engagement to meet her the following Saturday. Then he went out to camp, and with the light burning lawlessly in his tent he wrote a long letter to Gloria, a glowing letter, full of the sentimental dark, full of the remembered breath of flowers, full of a true and exceeding tenderness. These things he had learned again for a moment in a kiss given and taken under a rich warm moonlight just an hour before. When Saturday night came, he found Dot waiting at the entrance of the Bijou Moving Picture Theatre. She was dressed as on the preceding Wednesday in her lilac gown of frailest organdy, but it had evidently been washed and starched since then, for it was fresh and unrumpled. Daylight confirmed the impression he had received that, in a sketchy, faulty way, she was lovely. She was clean, her features were small, irregular but eloquent and appropriate to each other. She was a dark, unenduring little flower, yet he thought he detected in her some quality of spiritual reticence, of strength drawn from her passive acceptance of all things. In this he was mistaken. Dorothy Raycroft was nineteen. Her father kept a small, unprosperous corner store, and she had graduated from high school in the lowest fourth of her class two days before he died. At high school she had enjoyed a rather unsavory reputation. As a matter of fact, her behavior at the class picnic, where the rumor started, had been merely indiscreet. She had retained her technical purity until over a year later. The boy had been a clerk in a store on Jackson Street, and on the day after the incident he departed unexpectedly to New York. He had been intending to leave for some time but had tarried for the consummation of his amorous enterprise. After a while she confided the adventure to a girlfriend, and later, as she watched her friend disappear down the sleepy street of dusty sunshine, she knew in a flash of intuition that her story was going out into the world. Yet after telling it she felt much better, 
and a little bitter, and made as near an approach to character as she was capable of by walking in another direction and meeting another man with the honest intention of gratifying herself again. As a rule, things happened to Dot. She was not weak, because there was nothing in her to tell her she was being weak. She was not strong, because she never knew that some of the things she did were brave. She neither defied, nor conformed, nor compromised. She had no sense of humor, but to take its place, a happy disposition that made her laugh at the proper times when she was with men. She had no definite intentions. Sometimes she regretted vaguely that her reputation precluded what chance she had ever had for security. There had been no open discovery. Her mother was interested only in starting her off on time each morning for the jewelry store where she earned fourteen dollars a week, but some of the boys she had known in high school now looked the other way when they were walking with nice girls, and these incidents hurt her feelings. When they occurred she went home and cried. Besides the Jackson Street clerk there had been two other men, of whom the first was a naval officer, who passed through town during the early days of the war. He had stayed over a night to make a connection, and was leaning idly against one of the pillars of the Stonewall Hotel when she passed by. He remained in town four days. She thought she loved him, lavished on him that first hysteria of passion that would have gone to the pusillanimous clerk. The naval officer's uniform—there were few of them in those days—had made the magic. He left with vague promises on his lips and, once on the train, rejoiced that he had not told her his real name. Her resultant depression had thrown her into the arms of Cyrus Fielding, the son of a local clothier, who had hailed her from his roadster one day as she passed along the sidewalk. She had always known him by name. Had she been born to a higher stratum, he would have known her before. She had descended a little lower, so he met her after all. After a month, he had gone away to training camp, a little afraid of the intimacy, a little relieved in perceiving that she had not cared deeply for him, and that she was not the sort who would ever make trouble. Dot romanticized this affair and conceded to her vanity that the war had taken these men away from her. She told herself that she could have married the naval officer. Nevertheless, it worried her that within eight months there had been three men in her life. She thought, with more fear than wonder in her heart, that she would soon be like those bad girls on Jackson Street, at whom she and her gum-chewing, giggling friends had stared with fascinated glances three years before. For a while she attempted to be more careful. She let men pick her up, she let them kiss her, and even allowed certain other liberties to be forced upon her, but she did not add to her trio. After several months the strength of her resolution or rather the poignant expediency of her fears, was worn away. She grew restless drowsing there out of life and time while the summer months faded. The soldiers she met were either obviously below her, or less obviously above her, in which case they desired only to use her. They were Yankees, harsh and ungracious, they swarmed in large crowds, and then she met Anthony. On that first evening he had been little more than a pleasantly unhappy face, a voice, the means with which to pass an hour, but when she kept her engagement with him on Saturday she regarded him with consideration. She liked him. Unknowingly she saw her own tragedies mirrored in his face. 
Again they went to the movies, again they wandered along the shadowy, scented streets, hand in hand this time, speaking a little in hushed voices. They passed through the gate, up toward the little porch. "'I can stay a while, can I?' "'Shh!' she whispered. "'We've got to be very quiet. Mother sits up reading snappy stories.' In confirmation he heard the faint crackling inside as a page was turned. The open shutter slits emitted horizontal rods of light that fell in thin parallels across Dorothy's skirt. The street was silent, save for a group on the steps of a house across the way, who from time to time raised their voices in a soft, bantering song. "'When you wake, you shall have all the pretty houses.' Then, as though it had been waiting on a nearby roof for their arrival, the moon came slanting suddenly through the vines and turned the girl's face to the color of white roses. Anthony had a start of memory, so vivid that before his closed eyes there formed a picture, distinct as a flashback on a screen, a spring night of thaw set out of time in a half-forgotten winter five years before, another face, radiant, flower-like, upturned to lights as transforming as the stars. Ah, la belle dame sans merci who lived in his heart, made known to him in transitory fading splendor by dark eyes in the Ritz-Carlton, by a shadowy glance from a passing carriage in the Bois de Boulogne. But those nights were only part of a song, a remembered glory. Here again were the faint winds, the illusions, the eternal present with its promise of romance. Oh, she whispered, do you love me? Do you love me?" The spell was broken. The drifted fragments of the stars became only light, the singing down the street diminished to a monotone, to the whimper of locusts in the grass. With almost a sigh he kissed her fervent mouth, while her arms crept up about his shoulders. THE MAN-AT-ARMS As the weeks dried up and blew away, the range of Anthony's travels extended until he grew to comprehend the camp in its environment. For the first time in his life he was in constant personal contact with the waiters to whom he had given tips, the chauffeurs who had touched their hats to him, the carpenters, plumbers, barbers, and farmers who had previously been remarkable only in the subservience of their professional genuflections. During his first two months in camp he did not hold ten minutes' consecutive conversation with a single man. On the service record his occupation stood as student. On the original questionnaire he had prematurely written author. But when men in his company asked his business he commonly gave it as bank clerk. Had he told the truth that he did no work they would have been suspicious of him as a member of the leisure class. His platoon sergeant, Pop Donnelly, was a scraggly old soldier, worn thin with drink. In the past he had spent unnumbered weeks in the guardhouse, but recently, thanks to the drill-master famine, he had been elevated to his present pinnacle. His complexion was full of shell-holes. It bore an unmistakable resemblance to those aerial photographs of the battlefield at Blank. Once a week he got drunk downtown on white liquor, returned quietly to camp and collapsed upon his bunk, joining the company at Reveille looking more than ever like a white mask of death. He nursed the astounding delusion that he was astutely slipping it over on the government. 
He had spent eighteen years in its service at a minute wage, and he was soon to retire here he usually winked on the impressive income of fifty-five dollars a month. He looked upon it as a gorgeous joke that he had played upon the dozens who had bullied and scorned him since he was a Georgia country boy of nineteen. At present there were but two lieutenants, Hopkins and the popular Cretching. The latter was considered a good fellow and a fine leader, until a year later when he disappeared with a mess fund of eleven hundred dollars and, like so many leaders, proved exceedingly difficult to follow. Eventually there was Captain Dunning, god of this brief but self-sufficing microcosm. He was a reserve officer, nervous, energetic, and enthusiastic. The latter quality, indeed, often took material form and was visible as fine froth in the corners of his mouth. Like most executives, he saw his charges strictly from the front, and to his hopeful eyes his command seemed just such an excellent unit as such an excellent war deserved. For all his anxiety and absorption he was having the time of his life. Baptiste, the little Sicilian of the train, fell foul of him the second week of drill. The captain had several times ordered the men to be clean-shaven when they fell in each morning. One day there was disclosed an alarming breach of this rule, surely a case of Teutonic connivance. During the night four men had grown hair upon their faces. The fact that three of the four understood a minimum of English made a practical object lesson only the more necessary, so Captain Dunning resolutely sent a volunteer barber back to the company street for a razor. Whereupon, for the safety of democracy, a half-ounce of hair was scraped dry from the cheeks of three Italians and one Pole. Outside the world of the company there appeared from time to time the colonel, a heavy man with snarling teeth, who circumnavigated the battalion drill-field upon a handsome black horse. He was a West Pointer, and mimetically a gentleman. He had a dowdy wife and a dowdy mind, had spent much of his time in town taking advantage of the army's lately exalted social position. Last of all was the general who traversed the roads of the camp preceded by his flag, a figure so austere, so removed, so magnificent as to be scarcely comprehensible. DECEMBER Cool winds at night now, and damp, chilly mornings on the drill-grounds. As the heat faded, Anthony found himself increasingly glad to be alive. Renewed strangely through his body, he worried little and existed in the present with a sort of animal content. It was not that Gloria, or the life that Gloria represented, was less often in his thoughts. It was simply that she became, day by day, less real, less vivid. For a week they had corresponded passionately, almost hysterically. Then, by an unwritten agreement, they had ceased to write more than twice and then once a week. She was bored, she said. If his brigade was to be there a long time, she was coming down to join him. Mr. Haight was going to be able to submit a stronger brief than he had expected, but doubted that the appealed case would come up until late spring. Muriel was in the city doing Red Cross work, and they went out together rather often. What would Anthony think if she went into the Red Cross? Trouble was, she had heard that she might have to bathe negroes in alcohol and after that she hadn't felt so patriotic. The city was full of soldiers, 
and she'd seen a lot of boys she hadn't laid eyes on for years. Anthony did not want her to come south. He told himself that this was for many reasons. He needed a rest from her and she from him. She would be bored beyond measure in town, and she would be able to see Anthony for only a few hours each day. But in his heart he feared that it was because he was attracted to Dorothy. As a matter of fact, he lived in terror that Gloria should learn by some chance or intention of the relation he had formed. By the end of a fortnight the entanglement began to give him moments of misery at his own faithlessness. Nevertheless, as each day ended he was unable to withstand the lure that would draw him irresistibly out of his tent and over to the telephone at the Y.M.C.A. Dot. Yes. I may be able to get in tonight. I'm so glad. Do you want to listen to my splendid eloquence for a few starry hours? Oh, you funny! For an instant he had a memory of five years before, of Geraldine. Then, I'll arrive about eight. At seven he would be in a jitney bound for the city, where hundreds of little southern girls were waiting on moonlit porches for their lovers. He would be excited already for her warm, retarded kisses, for the amazed quietude of the glances she gave him, glances nearer to worship than any he had ever inspired. Gloria and he had been equals, giving without thought of thanks or obligation. To this girl his very caresses were an inestimable boon. Crying quietly, she had confessed to him that he was not the first man in her life. There had been one other. He gathered that the affair had no sooner commenced than it had been over. Indeed, so far as she was concerned, she spoke the truth. She had forgotten the clerk, the naval officer, the clothier's son, forgotten her vividness of emotion, which is true forgetting. She knew that in some opaque and shadowy existence someone had taken her. It was as though it had occurred in sleep. Almost every night Anthony came to town. It was too cool now for the porch, so her mother surrendered to them the tiny sitting-room, with its dozens of cheaply framed chromos, its yard upon yard of decorative fringe, and its thick atmosphere of several decades in the proximity of the kitchen. They would build a fire. Then, happily, inexhaustibly, she would go about the business of love. Each evening at ten she would walk with him to the door, her black hair in disarray, her face pale without cosmetics, paler still under the whiteness of the moon. As a rule it would be bright and silver outside. Now and then there was a slow warm rain, too indolent almost to reach the ground. "'Say you love me,' she would whisper. "'Why, of course, you sweet baby!' "'Am I a baby?' this almost wistfully. Just a little baby. She vaguely knew of Gloria. It gave her pain to think of it, so she imagined her to be haughty and proud and cold. She had decided that Gloria must be older than Anthony, and that there was no love between husband and wife. Sometimes she let herself dream that after the war Anthony would get a divorce and they would be married, but she never mentioned this to Anthony. She scarcely knew why. She shared his company's idea that he was a sort of bank clerk. She thought that he was respectable and poor. She would say, "'If I had some money, darling, I'd give every bit of it to you. 
I'd like to have about fifty thousand dollars.' "'I suppose that'd be plenty,' agreed Anthony. In her letter that day, Gloria had written, "'I suppose if we could settle for a million, it would be better to tell Mr. Haight to go ahead and settle. But it'd seem a pity.' "'We could have an automobile!' exclaimed Dot, in a final burst of triumph. End of Book Three, Chapter One, Part One Book Three, Chapter One, Part Two of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Impressive Occasion Captain Dunning prided himself on being a great reader of character. Half an hour after meeting a man, he was accustomed to place him in one of a number of astonishing categories fine man, good man, smart fellow, theorizer, poet, and worthless. One day early in February, he caused Anthony to be summoned to his presence in the orderly tent. Patch, he said sententiously, I've had my eye on you for several weeks. Anthony stood erect and motionless. And I think you've got the makings of a good soldier. He waited for the warm glow which this would naturally arouse to cool, and then continued. This is no child's play, he said, narrowing his brows. Anthony agreed with a melancholy, No, sir. It's a man's game, and we need leaders. Then the climax, swift, sure, and electric. Patch, I'm going to make you a corporal." At this point Anthony should have staggered slightly backward, overwhelmed. He was to be one of the quarter-million selected for that consummate trust. He was going to be able to shout the technical phrase, "'Follow me!' to seven other frightened men. "'You seem to be a man of some education,' said Captain Dunning. "'Yes, sir.' "'That's good, that's good.' Education's a great thing, but don't let it go to your head. Keep on the way you're doing, and you'll be a good soldier." With these parting words lingering in his ears, Corporal Patch saluted, executed a right-about face, and left the tent. Though the conversation amused Anthony, it did generate the idea that life would be more amusing as a sergeant, or, should he find a less exacting medical examiner, as an officer. He was little interested in the work, which seemed to belie the army's boasted gallantry. At the inspections, one did not dress up to look well, one dressed up to keep from looking badly. But as winter wore away, the short, snowless winter marked by damp nights and cool rainy days, he marveled at how quickly the system had grasped him. He was a soldier. All who were not soldiers were civilians. The world was divided primarily into those two classifications. It occurred to him that all strongly accentuated classes, such as the military, divided men into two kinds, their own kind and those without. To the clergyman there were the clergy and the laity, to the Catholic there were Catholics and non-Catholics, to the Negro there were blacks and whites, to the prisoner there were the imprisoned and the free and to the sick man there were the sick and the well. So, without thinking of it once in his lifetime, 
He had been a civilian, a layman, a non-Catholic, a Gentile, white, free, and well. As the American troops were poured into the French and British trenches, he began to find the names of many Harvard men among the casualties recorded in the Army and Navy Journal. But for all the sweat and blood the situation appeared unchanged, and he saw no prospect of the war's ending in the perceptible future. In the old chronicles the right wing of one army always defeated the left wing of the other, the left wing being, meanwhile, vanquished by the enemy's right. After that the mercenaries fled. It had been so simple in those days, almost as if prearranged. Gloria wrote that she was reading a great deal. What a mess they had made of their affairs, she said. She had so little to do now that she spent her time imagining how differently things might have turned out. Her whole environment appeared insecure, and a few years back she had seemed to hold all the strings in her own little hand. In June her letters grew hurried and less frequent. She suddenly ceased to write about coming south. Defeat March in the country around was rare with jasmine and jonquils and patches of violets in the warming grass. Afterward he remembered especially one afternoon of such a fresh and magic glamour that, as he stood in the rifle-pit marking targets, he recited Atalanta in Caledon to an uncomprehending pole, his voice mingling with the rip, sing, and splatter of the bullets overhead. When the hounds of spring, spang, are on winter's traces, whirl, the mother of months, hey, come to, mark three. In town the streets were in a sleepy dream again, and together Anthony and Dot idled in their own tracks of the previous autumn until he began to feel a drowsy attachment for this South. A South, it seemed, more of Algiers than of Italy, with faded aspirations pointing back over innumerable generations to some warm, primitive nirvana, without hope or care. Here there was an inflection of cordiality, of comprehension in every voice. Life plays the same lovely and agonizing joke on all of us," they seemed to say in their plaintive, pleasant cadence, in the rising inflection terminating on an unresolved minor. He liked his barber-shop, where he was, "'Hi, Corporal!' to a pale, emaciated young man, who shaved him and pushed a cool vibrating machine endlessly over his insatiable head. He liked Johnston's gardens, where they danced where a tragic negro made yearning, aching music on a saxophone until the garish hall became an enchanted jungle of barbaric rhythms and smoky laughter, where to forget the uneventful passage of time upon Dorothy's soft sighs and tender whisperings was the consummation of all aspiration, of all content. There was an undertone of sadness in her character, a conscious evasion of all except the pleasurable minutiae of life. Her violet eyes would remain for hours apparently insensate, as, thoughtless and reckless, she basked like a cat in the sun. He wondered what the tired, spiritless mother thought of them, and whether in her moments of uttermost cynicism she ever guessed at their relationship. On Sunday afternoons they walked along the countryside, resting at intervals on the dry moss in the outskirts of a wood. Here the birds had gathered and the clusters of violets and white dogwood. Here the hoar-trees shone crystalline and cool, 
oblivious to the intoxicating heat that waited outside. Here he would talk, intermittently, in a sleepy monologue, in a conversation of no significance, of no replies. July came scorching down. Captain Dunning was ordered to detail one of his men to learn blacksmithing. The regiment was filling up to war strength, and he needed most of his veterans for drill-masters, so he selected the little Italian, Baptiste, whom he could most easily spare. Little Baptiste had never had anything to do with horses. His fear made matters worse. He reappeared in the orderly room one day and told Captain Dunning that he wanted to die if he couldn't be relieved. The horses kicked at him, he said. He was no good at the work. Finally, he fell on his knees and besought Captain Dunning, in a mixture of broken English and scriptural Italian, to get him out of it. He had not slept for three days. Monstrous stallions reared and cavorted through his dreams. Captain Dunning reproved the company clerk, who had burst out laughing, and told Baptiste he would do what he could. But when he thought it over, he decided he couldn't spare a better man. Little Baptiste went from bad to worse. The horses seemed to divine his fear and take every advantage of it. Two weeks later a great black mare crushed his skull in with her hoofs while he was trying to lead her from her stall. In mid-July came rumors and then orders that concerned a change of camp. The brigade was to move to an empty cantonment a hundred miles farther south, there to be expanded into a division. At first the men thought they were departing for the trenches, and all evening little groups jabbered in the company street, shouting to each other in swaggering exclamations, "'Sure we are!' When the truth leaked out, it was rejected indignantly as a blind to conceal their real destination. They reveled in their own importance. That night they told their girls in town that they were going to get the Germans. Anthony circulated for a while among the groups, then, stopping a jitney, rode down to tell Dot that he was going away. She was waiting on the dark veranda in a cheap white dress that accentuated the youth and softness of her face. "'Oh,' she whispered, "'I've wanted you so, honey, all this day.' "'I have something to tell you.' She drew him down beside her on the swinging seat, not noticing his ominous tone. "'Tell me.' "'We're leaving next week.' Her arms seeking his shoulders remained poised upon the dark air, her chin tipped up. When she spoke the softness was gone from her voice. "'Leaving for France?' "'No, less luck than that. Leaving for some darn camp in Mississippi.' She shut her eyes and he could see that the lids were trembling. "'Dear little Dot, life is so damned hard.' She was crying upon his shoulder. So damned hard, so damned hard," he repeated aimlessly. It just hurts people and hurts people, until finally it hurts them so that they can't be hurt ever any more. That's the last and worst thing it does. Frantic, wild with anguish, she strained him to her breast. "'Oh, God!' she whispered brokenly. "'You can't go away from me! I'd die!' He was finding it impossible to pass off his departure as a common, impersonal blow. He was too near to her to do more than repeat, "'Poor little Dot! Poor little Dot!' "'And then what?' 
she demanded wearily. "'What do you mean?' "'You're my whole life, that's all. I'd die for you right now if you said so. I'd get a knife and kill myself. You can't leave me here.' Her tone frightened him. "'These things happen,' he said evenly. "'Then I'm going with you.' Tears were streaming down her cheeks. Her mouth was trembling in an ecstasy of grief and fear. "'Sweet,' he muttered sentimentally. "'Sweet little girl. Don't you see we'd just be putting off what's bound to happen? I'll be going to France in a few months.' She leaned away from him and, clenching her fists, lifted her face toward the sky. "'I want to die,' she said, as if molding each word carefully in her heart. "'Dot,' he whispered uncomfortably, "'you'll forget. Things are sweeter when they're lost. I know, because once I wanted something and got it. It was the only thing I ever wanted badly, Dot, and when I got it it turned to dust in my hands.' "'All right.' Absorbed in himself, he continued. "'I have often thought that, if I hadn't got what I wanted, things might have been different with me.' I might have found something in my mind and enjoyed putting it in circulation. I might have been content with the work of it and had some sweet vanity out of the success. I suppose that at one time I could have had anything I wanted, within reason, but that was the only thing I ever wanted with any fervor. God! And that taught me you can't have anything. You can't have anything at all. Because desire just cheats you. It's like a sunbeam skipping here and there about a room. It stops and gilds some inconsequential object, and we poor fools try to grasp it. But when we do, the sunbeam moves on to something else, and you've got the inconsequential part, but the glitter that made you want it is gone." He broke off uneasily. She had risen and was standing, dry-eyed, picking little leaves from a dark vine. Dot. "'Go away,' she said coldly. "'What? Why?' "'I don't want just words. If that's all you have for me, you'd better go.' "'Why, Dot? What's death to me is just a lot of words to you. You put them together so pretty.' "'I'm sorry. I was talking about you, Dot.' "'Go away from here.' He approached her with arms outstretched, but she held him away. "'You don't want me to go with you,' she said evenly. "'Maybe you're going to meet that—that girl.' She could not bring herself to say wife. "'How do I know? Well, then, I reckon you're not my fellow any more. So go away.' For a moment, while conflicting warnings and desires prompted Anthony, it seemed one of those rare times when he would take a step prompted from within. He hesitated. Then a wave of weariness broke against him. It was too late. Everything was too late. For years now he had dreamed the world away, basing his decisions upon emotions unstable as water. The little girl in the white dress dominated him, as she approached beauty in the hard symmetry of her desire. The fire blazing in her dark and injured heart seemed to glow around her like a flame. 
with some profound and uncharted pride she had made herself remote and so achieved her purpose. I didn't mean to seem so callous, Dot. It don't matter. The fire rolled over Anthony, something wrenched at his bowels, and he stood there helpless and beaten. Come with me, Dot, little loving Dot. Oh, come with me. I couldn't leave you now. With a sob she wound her arms around him and let him support her weight while the moon, at its perennial labor of covering the bad complexion of the world, showered its illicit honey over the drowsy street. THE CATASTROPHE Early September in Camp Boone, Mississippi. The darkness, alive with insects, beat in upon the mosquito netting, beneath the shelter of which Anthony was trying to write a letter. An intermittent chatter over a poker game was going on in the next tent. And outside a man was strolling up the company street singing a current bit of doggerel about K-K-K-Katie. With an effort Anthony hoisted himself to his elbow, and, pencil in hand, looked down at his blank sheet of paper. Then, omitting any heading, he began, I can't imagine what the matter is, Gloria. I haven't had a line from you for two weeks, and it's only natural to be worried." He threw this away with a disturbed grunt and began again. "'I don't know what to think, Gloria. Your last letter, short, cold, without a word of affection or even a decent account of what you've been doing, came two weeks ago. It's only natural that I should wonder. If your love for me isn't absolutely dead, it seems that you'd at least keep me from worry." Again he crumpled the page and tossed it angrily through a tear in the tent wall, realizing simultaneously that he would have to pick it up in the morning. He felt disinclined to try again. He could get no warmth into the lines, only a persistent jealousy and suspicion. Since midsummer these discrepancies in Gloria's correspondence had grown more and more noticeable. At first he had scarcely perceived them. He was so inured to the perfunctory dearest and darlings scattered through her letters that he was oblivious to their presence or absence. But in this last fortnight he had become increasingly aware that there was something amiss. He had sent her a night letter saying that he had passed his examinations for an officer's training camp and expected to leave for Georgia shortly. She had not answered. He had wired again. When he received no word, he imagined that she might be out of town. But it occurred and recurred to him that she was not out of town, and a series of distraught imaginings began to plague him. Supposing Gloria, bored and restless, had found someone, even as he had. The thought terrified him with its possibility. It was chiefly because he had been so sure of her personal integrity that he had considered her so sparingly during the year. And now, as a doubt was born, the old angers, the rages of possession, swarmed back a thousandfold. What more natural than that she should be in love again? He remembered the Gloria who promised that should she ever want anything she would take it, insisting that since she would act entirely for her own satisfaction she could go through such an affair unsmirched. It was only the effect on a person's mind that counted anyhow, she said and her reaction would be the masculine one, of satiation and faint dislike. But that had been when they were first married, 
Later, with the discovery that she could be jealous of Anthony, she had, outwardly at least, changed her mind. There were no other men in the world for her. This he had known only too surely. Perceiving that a certain fastidiousness would restrain her, he had grown lax in preserving the completeness of her love, which, after all, was the keystone of the entire structure. Meanwhile, all through the summer, he had been maintaining Dot in a boarding-house downtown. To do this it had been necessary to write to his broker for money. Dot had covered her journey south by leaving her house a day before the brigade broke camp, informing her mother in a note that she had gone to New York. On the evening following Anthony had called as though to see her. Mrs. Raycroft was in a state of collapse and there was a policeman in the parlour. A questionnaire had ensued, from which Anthony had extricated himself with some difficulty. In September, with his suspicions of Gloria, the company of Dot had become tedious, then almost intolerable. He was nervous and irritable from lack of sleep. His heart was sick and afraid. Three days ago he had gone to Captain Dunning and asked for a furlough, only to be met with benignant procrastination. The division was starting overseas, while Anthony was going to an officer's training camp. What furloughs could be given must go to the men who were leaving the country. Upon this refusal Anthony had started to the telegraph office intending to wire Gloria to come south. He reached the door and receded despairingly, seeing the utter impracticality of such a move. Then he had spent the evening quarreling irritably with Dot, and returned to camp morose and angry with the world. There had been a disagreeable scene in the midst of which he had precipitately departed. What was to be done with her did not seem to concern him vitally at present. He was completely absorbed in the disheartening silence of his wife. The flap of the tent made a sudden triangle back upon itself, and a dark head appeared against the night. Sergeant the Patch? The accent was Italian, and Anthony saw by the belt that the man was a headquarters orderly. Want me? Lady call up headquarters ten minutes ago. Say she have speak with you. Very important. Anthony swept aside the mosquito netting and stood up. It might be a wire from Gloria, telephoned over. She say to get you. She call again ten o'clock. All right, thanks. He picked up his hat and in a moment was striding beside the orderly through the hot, almost suffocating darkness. Over in the headquarters shack he saluted a dozing night-service officer. "'Sit down and wait,' suggested the lieutenant nonchalantly. "'Girl seemed awful anxious to speak to you.' Anthony's hopes fell away. "'Thank you very much, sir.' And as the phone squeaked on the sidewall he knew who was calling. "'This is Dot,' came an unsteady voice. "'I've got to see you.' Dot, I told you I couldn't get down for several days. I've got to see you tonight. It's important. It's too late, he said coldly. It's ten o'clock, and I have to be in camp at eleven. All right. There was so much wretchedness compressed into the two words that Anthony felt a measure of compunction. What's the matter? I want to tell you good-bye. Oh, don't be a little idiot!" he exclaimed. But his spirits rose. What luck if she should leave town this very night! 
what a burden from his soul. But he said, You can't possibly leave before tomorrow. Out of the corner of his eye he saw the night service officer regarding him quizzically. Then startlingly came Dot's next words. I don't mean leave that way. Anthony's hand clutched the receiver fiercely. He felt his nerves turning cold as if the heat was leaving his body. What? Then quickly, in a wild broken voice, he heard, Goodbye! Oh, goodbye! Kalup! She had hung up the receiver. With a sound that was half a gasp, half a cry, Anthony hurried from the headquarters building. Outside, under the stars that dripped like silver tassels through the trees of the little grove, he stood motionless, hesitating. Had she meant to kill herself? Oh, the little fool! He was filled with bitter hate toward her. In this denouement he found it impossible to realize that he had ever begun such an entanglement, such a mess, a sordid melange of worry and pain. He found himself walking slowly away, repeating over and over that it was futile to worry. He had best go back to his tent and sleep. He needed sleep. God, would he ever sleep again? His mind was in a vast clamor and confusion. As he reached the road he turned around in a panic and began running, not toward his company but away from it. Men were returning now, he could find a taxicab. After a minute two yellow eyes appeared around a bend. Desperately he ran toward them. "'Jitney! Jitney!' It was an empty Ford. "'I want to go to town.' "'Cost you a dollar.' "'All right, if you'll just hurry.' After an interminable time he ran up the steps of a dark ramshackle little house, and through the door almost knocking over an immense negress who was walking candle in hand along the hall. "'Where's my wife?' he cried wildly. "'She gone to bed.' Up the stairs three at a time, down the creaking passage. The room was dark and silent, and with trembling fingers he struck a match. Two wide eyes looked up at him from a wretched ball of clothes on the bed. "'Ah, I knew you'd come,' she murmured brokenly. Anthony grew cold with anger. "'So it was just a plan to get me down here, get me in trouble,' he said. "'God damn it! You've shouted wolf once too often!' She regarded him pitifully. "'I had to see you. I couldn't have lived.' Oh, I had to see you!" He sat down on the side of the bed and slowly shook his head. "'You're no good,' he said decisively, talking unconsciously as Gloria might have talked to him. "'This sort of thing isn't fair to me, you know.' "'Come closer!' Whatever he might say, Dot was happy now. He cared for her. She had brought him to her side. "'Oh, God!' said Anthony hopelessly. As weariness rolled along its inevitable wave his anger subsided, receded, vanished. He collapsed suddenly, fell sobbing beside her on the bed. "'Oh, my darling!' she begged him. "'Don't cry! Oh, don't cry!' She took his head upon her breast and soothed him, mingled her happy tears with the bitterness of his. Her hand played gently with his dark hair. I'm such a little fool," she murmured brokenly, but I love you, 
and when you're cold to me it seems as if it isn't worth while to go on living. After all, this was peace, the quiet room with the mingled scent of women's powder and perfume, Dot's hand soft as a warm wind upon his hair, the rise and fall of her bosom as she took breath. For a moment it was as though it were Gloria there, as though he were at rest in some sweeter and safer home than he had ever known. An hour passed. A clock began to chime in the hall. He jumped to his feet and looked at the phosphorescent hands of his wristwatch. It was twelve o'clock. He had trouble in finding a taxi that would take him out at that hour. As he urged the driver faster along the road, he speculated on the best method of entering camp. He had been late several times recently, and he knew that were he caught again his name would probably be stricken from the list of officer candidates. He wondered if he had not better dismiss the taxi and take a chance on passing the sentry in the dark. Still, officers often rode past the sentries after midnight. Halt! The monosyllable came from the yellow glare that the headlights dropped upon the changing road. The taxi driver threw out his clutch and a sentry walked up, carrying his rifle at the port. With him, by an ill chance, was the officer of the guard. Out late, sergeant. Yes, sir. Got delayed. Too bad. Have to take your name. As the officer waited, notebook and pencil in hand, something not fully intended crowded to Anthony's lips, something born of panic, of muddle, of despair. Sergeant R. A. Foley, he answered breathlessly. And the outfit? Company Q, 83rd Infantry. All right. You'll have to walk from here, sergeant. Anthony saluted, quickly paid his taxi-driver, and set off for a run toward the regiment he had named. When he was out of sight, he changed his course and, with his heart beating wildly, hurried to his company, feeling that he had made a fatal error of judgment. Two days later, the officer who had been in command of the guard recognized him in a barber-shop downtown. In charge of a military policeman, he was taken back to the camp where he was reduced to the ranks without trial and confined for a month to the limits of his company street. With this blow a spell of utter depression overtook him, and within a week he was again caught downtown, wandering around in a drunken daze, with a pint of bootleg whiskey in his hip pocket. It was because of a sort of craziness in his behavior at the trial that his sentence to the guardhouse was for only three weeks. Nightmare. Early in his confinement, the conviction took root in him that he was going mad. It was as though there were a quantity of dark yet vivid personalities in his mind, some of them familiar, some of them strange and terrible, held in check by a little monitor, who sat aloft somewhere and looked on. The thing that worried him was that the monitor was sick and holding out with difficulty. Should he give up, should he falter for a moment, out would rush these intolerable things. Only Anthony could know what a state of blackness there would be if the worst of him could roam his consciousness unchecked. The heat of the day had changed somehow, until it was a burnished darkness crushing down upon a devastated land. Over his head the blue circles of ominous uncharted suns, of unnumbered centers of fire, revolved interminably before his eyes, as though he were lying constantly exposed to the hot light in a state of feverish coma. 
at seven in the morning something phantasmal, something almost absurdly unreal that he knew was his mortal body, went out with seven other prisoners and two guards to work on the camp roads. One day they loaded and unloaded quantities of gravel, spread it, raked it. The next day they worked with huge barrels of red-hot tar, flooding the gravel with black, shining pools of molten heat. At night, locked up in the guardhouse, he would lie without thought, without courage to compass thought, staring at the irregular beams of the ceiling overhead until about three o'clock, when he would slip into a broken, troubled sleep. During the work hours he labored with uneasy haste, attempting, as the day bore toward the sultry Mississippi sunset, to tire himself physically so that in the evening he might sleep deeply from utter exhaustion. Then, one afternoon in the second week, he had a feeling that two eyes were watching him from a place a few feet beyond one of the guards. This aroused him to a sort of terror. He turned his back on the eyes and shoveled feverishly, until it became necessary for him to face about and go for more gravel. Then they entered his vision again, and his already taut nerves tightened up to the breaking point. The eyes were leering at him. Out of a hot silence he heard his name called in a tragic voice, and the earth tipped absurdly back and forth to a babble of shouting and confusion. When next he became conscious he was back in the guardhouse, and the other prisoners were throwing him curious glances. The eyes returned no more. It was many days before he realized that the voice must have been Dot's, that she had called out to him and made some sort of disturbance. He decided this just previous to the expiration of his sentence, when the cloud that oppressed him had lifted, leaving him in a deep, dispirited lethargy. As the conscious mediator, the monitor who kept that fearsome menage of horror grew stronger, Anthony became physically weaker. He was scarcely able to get through the two days of toil, and when he was released, one rainy afternoon, and returned to his company, he reached his tent only to fall into a heavy doze, from which he awoke before dawn, aching and unrefreshed. Beside his cot were two letters that had been waiting him in the orderly tent for some time. The first was from Gloria. It was short and cool. The case is coming to trial late in November. Can you possibly get leave? I've tried to write you again and again, but it just seems to make things worse. I want to see you about several matters, but you know that you have once prevented me from coming and I am disinclined to try again. In view of a number of things it seems necessary that we have a conference. I'm very glad about your appointment. Gloria He was too tired to try to understand, or to care. Her phrases, her intentions, were all very far away in an incomprehensible past. At the second letter he scarcely glanced. It was from Dot, an incoherent, tear-swollen scrawl, a flood of protest, endearment, and grief. After a page he let it slip from his inert hand and drowsed back into a nebulous hinterland of his own. At drill call he awoke with a high fever and fainted when he tried to leave his tent. At noon he was sent to the base hospital with influenza. He was aware that this sickness was providential. It saved him from a hysterical relapse, and he recovered in time to entrain on a damp November day for New York, and for the interminable massacre beyond.
When the regiment reached Camp Mills, Long Island, Anthony's single idea was to get into the city and see Gloria as soon as possible. It was now evident that an armistice would be signed within the week, but rumor had it that in any case troops would continue to be shipped to France until the last moment. Anthony was appalled at the notion of the long voyage, of a tedious debarkation at a French port, and of being kept abroad for a year, possibly, to replace the troops who had seen actual fighting. His intention had been to obtain a two-day furlough, but Camp Mills proved to be under a strict influenza quarantine. It was impossible for even an officer to leave except on official business. For a private it was out of the question. The camp itself was a dreary muddle, cold, wind-swept, and filthy, with the accumulated dirt incident to the passage through of many divisions. Their train came in at seven one night, and they waited in line until one while a military tangle was straightened out somewhere ahead. Officers ran up and down ceaselessly, calling orders and making a great uproar. It turned out that the trouble was due to the colonel, who was in a righteous temper because he was a West Pointer, and the war was going to stop before he could get overseas. Had the militant governments realized the number of broken hearts among the older West Pointers during that week, they would indubitably have prolonged the slaughter another month. The thing was pitiable. Gazing out at the bleak expanse of tents extending for miles over a trodden welter of slush and snow, Anthony saw the impracticability of trudging to a telephone that night. He would call her at the first opportunity in the morning. Aroused in the chill and bitter dawn, he stood at Reveille and listened to a passionate harangue from Captain Dunning. "'You men may think the war is over. Well, let me tell you, it isn't. Those fellows aren't going to sign the armistice. It's another trick, and we'd be crazy to let anything slacken up here in the company, because let me tell you, we're going to sail from here within a week, and when we do, we're going to see some real fighting.' He paused that they might get the full effect of his pronouncements. And then, if you think the war's over, just talk to anyone who's been in it and see if they think the Germans are all in. They don't. Nobody does. I've talked to the people that know, and they say there'll be, anyways, a year longer of war. They don't think it's over. So you men better not get any foolish ideas that it is. Doubly stressing this final admonition, he ordered the company dismissed. At noon Anthony set off at a run for the nearest canteen telephone. As he approached what corresponded to the downtown of the camp, he noticed that many other soldiers were running also, that a man near him had suddenly leaped into the air and clicked his heels together. The tendency to run became general, and from little excited groups here and there came the sounds of cheering. He stopped and listened. Over the cold country whistles were blowing and the chimes of the Garden City churches broke suddenly into reverberatory sound. Anthony began to run again. The cries were clear and distinct now as they rose with clouds of frosted breath into the chilly air. Germany surrendered! Germany surrendered! The False Armistice That evening, in the opaque gloom of six o'clock, Anthony slipped between two freight cars, and once over the railroad, followed the track along to Garden City, where he caught an electric train for New York. He stood some chance of apprehension. He knew that the military police were often sent through the cars to ask for passes, 
but he imagined that tonight the vigilance would be relaxed. But in any event, he would have tried to slip through, for he had been unable to locate Gloria by telephone, and another day of suspense would have been intolerable. After inexplicable stops and waits that reminded him of the night he had left New York over a year before, they drew into the Pennsylvania station, and he followed the familiar way to the taxi-stand, finding it grotesque and oddly stimulating to give his own address. Broadway was a riot of light, thronged as he had never seen it with a carnival crowd which swept its glittering way through scraps of paper piled ankle-deep on the sidewalks. Here and there, elevated upon benches and boxes, soldiers addressed the heedless mass, each face in which was clear-cut and distinct under the white glare overhead. Anthony picked out a half a dozen figures. A drunken sailor, tipped backward and supported by two other gobs, was waving his hat and emitting a wild series of roars. A wounded soldier, crutch in hand, was borne along in an eddy on the shoulders of some shrieking civilians. A dark-haired girl sat cross-legged and meditative on top of a parked taxicab. Here, surely, the victory had come in time. The climax had been scheduled with the uttermost celestial foresight. The great rich nation had made triumphant war, suffered enough for poignancy but not enough for bitterness, hence the carnival, the feasting, the triumph. Under these bright lights glittered the faces of peoples whose glory had long since passed away whose very civilizations were dead men whose ancestors had heard the news of victory in Babylon, in Nineveh, in Baghdad, in Tyre, a hundred generations before. Men whose ancestors had seen a flower-decked, slave-adorned cortege drift with its wake of captives down the avenues of imperial Rome. Past the Rialto, the glittering front of the Aster, the jeweled magnificence of Times Square a gorgeous alley of incandescence ahead. Then, was it years later, he was paying the taxi-driver in front of a white building on 57th Street. He was in the hall. Ah, there was the negro boy from Martinique, lazy, indolent, unchanged. "'Is Mrs. Patch in?' "'I have just come on, sir,' the man announced with his incongruous British accent. "'Take me up.' Then the slow drone of the elevator, the three steps to the door, which swung open at the impetus of his knock. "'Gloria!' His voice was trembling. No answer. A faint string of smoke was rising from a cigarette tray. A number of vanity fairs sat astraddle on the table. "'Gloria!' He ran into the bedroom, the bath. She was not there. A negligee of robin's egg blue laid out upon the bed diffused a faint perfume, elusive and familiar. On a chair were a pair of stockings and a street dress. An open powder-box yawned upon the bureau. She must have gone out. The telephone rang abruptly and he started, answered it with all the sensations of an impostor. "'Hello. Is Mrs. Patch there?' "'No. I'm looking for her myself. Who is this?' This is Mr. Crawford. This is Mr. Patch speaking. I just arrived unexpectedly, and I don't know where to find her. Oh! Mr. Crawford sounded a bit taken aback. Why, I imagine she's at the Armistice Ball. I know she intended going, but I didn't think she'd leave so early. Where's the Armistice Ball? At the Aster. Thanks. Anthony hung up sharply and rose, 
Who was Mr. Crawford? And who was it that was taking her to the ball? How long had this been going on? All these questions asked and answered themselves a dozen times, a dozen ways. His very proximity to her drove him half frantic. In a frenzy of suspicion, he rushed here and there about the apartment, hunting for some sign of masculine occupation, opening the bathroom cupboard, searching feverishly through the bureau drawers. Then he found something that made him stop suddenly and sit down on one of the twin beds, the corners of his mouth drooping as though he were about to weep. There, in a corner of her drawer, tied with a frail blue ribbon, were all the letters and telegrams he had written her during the year past. He was suffused with happy and sentimental shame. "'I'm not fit to touch her!' he cried aloud to the four walls. "'I'm not fit to touch her little hand!' Nevertheless he went out to look for her. In the Astor lobby he was engulfed immediately in a crowd so thick as to make progress almost impossible. He asked the direction of the ballroom from half a dozen people before he could get a sober and intelligible answer. Eventually, after a last long wait, he checked his military overcoat in the hall. It was only nine, but the dance was in full blast. The panorama was incredible. Women, women everywhere. Girls gay with wine singing shrilly above the clamor of the dazzling confetti-covered throng. Girls set off by the uniforms of a dozen nations. Fat females collapsing with dignity upon the floor and retaining self-respect by shouting, Hurrah for the Allies! Three women with white hair dancing hand in hand around a sailor, who revolved in a dizzying spin upon the floor, clasping to his heart an empty bottle of champagne. Breathlessly, Anthony scanned the dancers, scanned the muddled lines trailing in single file in and out among the tables, scanned the horn-blowing, kissing, coughing, laughing, drinking parties under the great full-bosomed flags which leaned in glowing color over the pageantry and the sound. Then he saw Gloria. She was sitting at a table for two directly across the room. Her dress was black, and above it her animated face, tinted with the most glamorous rose, made, he thought, a spot of poignant beauty on the room. His heart leaped as though to a new music. He jostled his way toward her and called her name just as the gray eyes looked up and found him. For that instant, as their bodies met and melted, the world, the revel, the tumbling whimper of the music faded to an ecstatic monotone hushed as a song of bees. "'Oh, my Gloria!' he cried. Her kiss was a cool rill flowing from her heart. End of Book Three, Chapter One, Part Two Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.